If you would, please turn with me to the Psalms. We're in Psalm 27 this morning. Psalm 27. We're to continue with the Psalms through the end of August. September, take a couple weeks and focus at least a couple sermons on just doctrine, considering doctrine of creation, doctrine of God's providence. And then we will pick back up where we left off in the book of Acts, and I'll take us through October, and we'll do our sort of our biographical sermon sketch. I'll take us then into, then we'll go into November, and then before you know it, we'll be into sort of the Advent season. This morning we are in Psalm 27. beginning in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray to you this morning, knowing that you hear us, and we ask that you might draw near to us as we give careful consideration to your word. Help us increase our minds and hearts' capacity to to take in, to understand your living and abiding word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage, namely the first three verses, sets up the situation for us. And in that situation, we have our introduction. And in this situation, we see at least a couple of different things. In verse 2, we see the identifying 
or the naming of particular individuals or groups of individuals who are identified as evildoers, adversaries, foes, those who are bent on devouring and consuming the psalmist. And in that situation, we also have the mention of an army, an army encamped against me, he says. War arising against me. The situation is one of paralyzing fear. Fear is probably one of the most dominant feelings or experiences common to all people. Everybody at some point experiences fear at some level, whether it's fear of standing in front of a crowd, whether it is fear of doing something wrong or making the wrong decision, or maybe it's the, the, the nagging what-if question, well, what if this happens, or what if that happens, imagining the worst-case scenario in a given situation, what if that happened? Or the fear that comes from receiving some kind of illness. Or for some, it is the fear of death. The fear of a looming disaster. The fear of danger. The fear of harm. The fear that comes from an enemy. No one here is a stranger to fear. At some point, we come across a situation or circumstance or even an individual that comes to us in the form of fear that might tempt us to abandon all hope. When the king of Assyria wondered if there was somebody amongst his people that was a traitor, one of his own had said, My Lord, it is not that you have someone in your midst who is betraying you, it's that Elisha, the prophet, knows what you're going to do before you do it. So he sends his army to surround the entire village where Elisha resides. And out of fear, Elisha's servant looks at the whole host of army and says, Alas, my Lord, what do we do? It's a response generated by fear. And that's a situation. It's a situation that carries us all the way to the end of the psalm leading to the wonderful conclusion. But even much before that, in those first three verses, we have a pretty surprising response in the midst of paralyzing fear. The psalmist, though there are evildoers and adversaries and foes who are bent on devouring him, he still says, whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I don't know about you, but what I want to know is, where do you get that confidence? I mean, to be able to stand up to paralyzing fear and say, I'm not going to be afraid of anything. Such courage is actually, it's very alluring. It's very attractional. When we see somebody with that kind of courage in the midst of opposition, one cannot help but want that themselves. 
It's that kind of courage that we see consistently throughout the scriptures, from the patriarchs to the, the prophets to the apostles of Jesus Christ, even Jesus himself, yes, divine, absolutely, but also fully man and was himself acquainted with fear. And to be able to continue to move forward, to stand, continue the course, it's very alluring when we recognize that. Right? And we're proud of ourselves when we have that courage to continue to move forward as well. And that kind of courage that we see throughout the Scriptures, you don't get that kind of courage by attending, say, a Tony Robbins event. No man can produce this kind of courage. No, this is a God-given courage. This is a Christian fearlessness in the midst of opposition. The psalmist David himself is, is no superhuman. He's human himself, which shows us that this is a kind of courage that is accessible. It's a Daniel-like resolve to continue to worship the Lord, not just in, in private, but especially so in public, even when the edict coming from the king is to worship his image. It's the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the law of the land was to worship the king in his image, and they would not bow down. But in response, they say to the king, after being threatened with being consumed in the fiery furnace, they say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. For this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but even if the Lord should not rescue us in this dire hour, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's a God-given kind of courage. Nothing else can produce that kind of courage. And so as we see this kind of courage, in the midst of paralyzing fear, what we want to know is, what's, what's your secret? You know, give us the scoop. See what's going on. I can even sort of, I can get a hint, I can smell what it is that you're, you're cooking there in the oven. I want to know what the secret sauce is. What's your secret ingredient to this kind of courage? To be able to say, though they are evildoers encamped against me, and though war rise against me, yet I will not fear. I will not fear any man. To be able to say that the enemy soldiers, though they make haste towards me, they're going to stumble and fall like if they were running with two left feet. Where do you get this from? This confidence, this courage. In his earthly wisdom, Sun Tzu, in Art of War, writes, the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. That's definitely wise. right? To, that the enemy is already defeated before you even step into the battlefield. That's, that's wisdom. How do you do that? And for the Christian, that's no mystery how that's even accomplished. The secret sauce is having the conqueror of conquerors on your side. 
is having the King of Kings on your side. It is having the risen Lord who already has subdued the enemies of the cross, who has already subdued the enemies of the church, who has already subdued the enemies of each and every individual Christian. It is knowing that they are already defeated in Christ Jesus. It's where we draw this confidence from. But in addition to that, where does the psalmist draw this confidence that he does indeed have this God on his side? So the key is to have this God on your side, but how can you be confident that this God is actually on your side, that he is standing with you and standing for you? Verse 4 One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So we're getting to the answer of where he draws his confidence of having God on his side. He tells us, what is is he seeking after? What is he What's his goal? What is he desirous of? He's desirous of dwelling in the house of the Lord. He's not looking to just be a roommate or a tenant that pays, that pays rent in the house of the Lord. No, he wants to be a permanent dweller. He wants to be welcomed in. He wants to be friended. He is seeking close communion and intimacy and fellowship with the Lord to be in his house, to be in his temple, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to consider the glorious attributes of God, His excellencies, His perfection. I can't say this with confident assurance because the Scriptures do not give us enough information to help us to understand what heaven is really, really like. But I like to think that in heaven, having the eyes of our faith perfected, that we might be able to see with our eyes the actual goodness of the Lord. For us today, right now, in the here and now, we know the goodness of the Lord by reading in His Scriptures. We know the goodness of the Lord because when He is good to us and when He provides for us, when He causes the sun outside to rise in the morning each and every day, we see that kind of goodness. But to be able to actually see Him, And to see, I see that goodness. I see that mercy. I see that love. It's very different. I think that's what he's after. And to inquire in his temple, to not only be able to see the Lord, but to try to understand, to wrap his mind, to ruminate, to try to chew on everything that makes God who he is. It's like an admirer of a marvelous painting who is there and stares at it. He's captivated by it. He notices every single detail of that canvas. And if he could have a conversation with the original author of the portrait of the canvas, he might ask them some very inquisitive questions. Could you explain to me your inspiration could you explain to me 
the detail that you put right here. How did you come up with this, this color scheme here? What did you mix? What did you put together? I noticed the different strokes of the paintbrush, and they're different in this corner. They are in this corner. Could you explain this to me? I noticed that you use a thicker brush here when you would have made sense to use a much thinner brush. Could you help me to understand this kind of the idea? To be in the temple of the Lord, to see, to behold, to comprehend, to understand. And why is he after this? Verse 5 answers, For he will hide me in his shelter in a day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. He's seeking the house of the Lord to dwell there so that he then might be sheltered in God's house. In the midst of paralyzing fear. And in this way, Christ is the, the embassy to every Christian pilgrim seeking refuge and safety. To where the Christian pilgrim is sheltered and even put in a secret place that no one else knows. But the idea is not to then just be kept hidden permanently there, but as the psalm says, is then to be lifted high upon a rock, to have one's head be lifted high above one's enemies. It is sheltered, concealed, protected in order to then be lifted up. Romans 8.31 It says, what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the paralyzing fears that we come across in our lives? If God is for us, who? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. This passage speaks to this lifting up of one's head above one's enemies to be able to say, not only am I not afraid in the midst of paralyzing fear, but what can you do to my life? What can you do that is of any significant value to my life? What can you do to my life when my life is hidden with Christ, when my life is secured with Christ, when my permanent dwelling has already been secured in Christ Jesus? It's there and it is waiting for me and nothing that you can do in this life can touch or lay a finger on my eternal rewards. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
That passage right there has some things in there that's hard for us to comprehend right now because we see what we see. We experience what we experience. I see you, you see me, I see myself, I know that I am here, but the passage says that there's a reality that goes beyond the present, and that is that your life is actually seated right now with Christ Jesus. Yes, your life is here now, but you also, through faith in Jesus Christ, have been raised up with Jesus Christ. And that even as Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, your life is also seated with Christ Jesus at the right hand of God. In Christ Jesus, we are shielded from the wrath of God, which we deserve for our sins, but then raised up to glory. We have been buried with Christ Jesus, that is our old self, and then raised in Christ Jesus to new life in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the judgment has already been carried out that we deserve. Christ subjected himself to that judgment on our behalf so that we can then be released from the prison of our sins and our condemnation. And then the grounding of his confidence continues in verse 8. It says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. We saw that he's seeking the house of the Lord. And he is seeking the face of God. He's not seeking the goodness of God. He's not seeking the glory of God. He's not seeking the peace of God, the satisfaction in Christ. He's not seeking those things, though those things are good to seek after. He says he's seeking the Lord's face. In all of God's goodness, in all of his glory, in all of his satisfaction, in all of his joy, in all of his pleasures are found in seeking the face of God. The great blessing that sometimes we will recite on Sunday mornings, familiar to many of you all, number 624, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Different ways of essentially saying the same thing. In the book of in the Psalms, it's not often that you find the statement of seeking the Lord's face. And I'm quite sure that in every instance where we see the seeking of God's face in the Psalms, it's always connected to salvation. Why do we seek the face of God? Why does the psalmist seek the face of the Lord? Because he also seeks the the Lord's salvation. Now, the salvation of the Lord is not just a salvation from something unto something else. It is not just a rescuing from a dire situation into a much more pleasant situation. Though that is part of it, but God is much more interested in that, or something much better than that. 
Because you see, when we see God's salvation, God is much more interested in saving people into relationship. Hence why the Lord says, after he has saved his people from slavery in Egypt, I will be your God and you will be my people. The seeking of the Lord's face in this even this prayer of number 624 is that the Lord would bestow upon us His divine favor. That even as He knows us, even as He's well acquainted with us because He knows everything about us, that He might show favor to us. And the reason He can have favor towards us and look favorably upon us It's because when he looks down upon you, he does not just see you, but he sees Christ. And that becomes attractional to the face of God. So the psalmist, please, before the Lord, cast me not off. He doesn't make these pleas to the Lord, not out of because he's afraid that God will desert him but he's simply converting promises to prayer. So very much like we might say that, Lord, you promised to never leave me nor forsake me. So we might say, Lord, so please do not leave me or forsake me. So he's drawing this confidence that he has this Lord with him, that he has this powerful God next to him, from the fact that he is seeking the Lord, he is seeking his face. And what does God do when people seek his face? Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen answers, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The promise is that when you seek the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your being, even in the midst of paralyzing fear, no, even in the midst of anxiety, The promise is, if you seek him, you'll find him. He will show himself to you. Verse 9, or rather verse 10, speaks of relationships. Some versions, I think, have it worded better in saying, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Not everyone has had the most pleasant or ideal relationship with their parents, but in a perfect and ideal world, everyone would have a perfect and intimate relationship with their parents because it's intended to be one of the most personal relationships of one's life. And the psalmist says he finds satisfaction in his relationship with the Lord. And even if he does not find it in the most intimate of relationships, he finds that satisfaction in the Lord, in the God who refuges him, who shelters him, who conceals him in order to then lift him up with his head above his enemies. In Christ Jesus, We have a permanent and a mobile 
abode. The psalm continues, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. He's asking, Lord, steady my steps. Do not forsake me to my adversary. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, but teach me your ways. Teach me to continue to walk the path of confidence, of courage, the path of faith, even when everything else in my life is telling me to abandon my faith and to abandon my hope. Teach me to walk on a level path, intimately, personally. You might even feel as if you are walking on ice across a frozen lake, and you take a step and you immediately hear the cracks under your feet. And at that moment, you're paralyzed. You're afraid of taking another step because you're afraid that you will cave under the ice and fall into the frigid waters. And the plea, the cry, and the promise... The psalm is that God will steady your steps under you. So that even if you feel as if you are walking on ice, the Lord will not allow your foot and your steps to crumble through the ice. In this way, Christ Jesus is not just an embassy for every Christian pilgrim, but he is a mobile embassy, that wherever you go, you have this refuge, this embassy in Christ Jesus following with you, or following you. And all of this leads to verses 13 and 14 with the great imperative, or the great command, which is, wait for the Lord. I believe, says in verse 13, that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So we see his confidence in the midst of paralyzing fear, this courage that he is not afraid of anyone, he's not afraid of anything because he has this God on his side and from where does he draw this confidence that he does indeed have this confidence, God on his side is the fact that he pursues the Lord. He seeks the Lord with all of his heart and all of his mind. He seeks the shining face of God upon his life and the reward for those who seek the face of God is that they shall see the face of God. They shall see him. And so he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Notice that this is a present hope. That he will see his goodness in the present. Oftentimes, especially when we are going through trials and situations where we are suffering, we trust the goodness of God, we know to ourselves God is good and he will show himself good. If not in this life, then certainly in the afterlife, my life is kept safe and secure in the hands of the living God who is seated at the right hand of God. The eternal rewards and blessings are awaiting, are waiting for me there in heaven. Yes, absolutely true. Claim those promises. But the passage points us to a present hope, not a future one. Psalm 46 Verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. 
Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. That sounds like another paralyzing situation. I mean, could you imagine the earth beneath you just crumbling away? Or could you imagine, if you could, mountains being removed and thrown into the sea? Could you imagine the roaring of waves, the chaos, the chaos of the oceans producing titanic tsunamis? It's almost like, it's almost very, like, very apocalyptic. And the response is, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. We steel ourselves today with courage and confidence to the God who has delivered in the past, who has promised to come through in the future, and also promises to deliver in the present. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are a people of the gospel. Part of our confidence we draw from the cross of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners. is still an ever-present reality today because in Christ Jesus we know that we have hope today. Because Christ Jesus died for me on the cross, I know that I can be confident today in the midst of trouble and calamity and distress in the midst of fear. I can be courageous and have confidence today because all of my enemies have been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. The world, the flesh, the devil, all subdued by the cross of Jesus Christ. And that today, any of the blessings that you and I receive comes through Jesus Christ. So again, we say with Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us? all things that we need today to walk in that confidence and in that hope. Therefore, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. If fear is like the night of day, then the Lord is like the sun, who upon his coming ushers in the dawning of the day and his coming deliverance. We're called to wait. It doesn't tell us for how long we need to wait. In the midst of fear and anxiety and distress, how long do we wait for the Lord's deliverance? It does not answer. It just simply says to wait. King David waited 15 years before he actually became king. 15 years. You have a hard time waiting for 15 minutes. The command is to wait for the Lord. 
and we can wait if we are confident in God, confident in His goodness, confident in His abiding presence. If we believe those things and confident in those things, then we can certainly wait and wait with expectation. It's this confidence that leads to expectation. We can expect while waiting. When you tell, the father tells his child, son, I'm going off to work now. But when I come back, we're going to go outside and play catch. He's off to work. The son goes about his day, whatever he does. He reminds his mother, mom, Dad said that when he comes back, I'm going to go outside and play catch. He goes and plays with his friends. He tells his friends, guys, my dad said that when he comes back, I'm going to go outside and play catch. Even if the father's delayed a bit, he still carries with them this confident expectation, dad's going to come home and we're going to go play catch. How does a child have that kind of confidence and his father, because he knows his father, because he trusts in his word. He believes him. He believes that he will actually do as he says, as he said, and come back and go outside and play catch with him. It was William Plummer minister who once said, one of the best ways to dispel doubts and fears is to submit to our aid the very strongest doctrines and highest truths of religion. Weak doctrines will not be a match for powerful temptations. I'm not afraid to say that I love doctrine and theology, and I want to encourage everyone in the church to love doctrine and theology because doctrine and theology saves lives. Weak doctrine and weak theology is not going to be any good to the world or good to anybody because they will always crumble under the pressures of temptation and paralyzing fear and anxiety and distress. But it is your confidence in what you believe that will carry you through the waiting. All in all, the, 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 the secret sauce, the secret ingredient, this kind of courage is faith. Faith is your means of protection. To abandon one's faith is to abandon all hope. It is to remove your only means of protection. What you believe will determine how well you endure. It will determine how well you wait. And what is it that you're waiting for? You're waiting for the goodness of the Lord. And what is his goodness. Well, the goodness of God in your life and mine cannot be defined by man's definition. It cannot be measured by numbers or placed on a scale or anything else. The goodness of God is whatever results in greater satisfaction in Him. 
And yes, the goodness of God is experienced in deliverance, tangible deliverance, when God comes through, when God provides, when God changes the situation. Yes, that is the goodness of the Lord. When He relieves you from fear, when He relieves you from anxiety, when He relieves you from temptation, when He relieves you from seasons of stress and turmoil. But as we consider the passage, the goodness of the Lord is whatever results in your walking in greater confidence, even in the midst of fear and anxiety. And how do you know when you have this confidence of God in the midst of fear? You know you have it when you still worship. That's what the psalmist leads us to. He worships, he sings of the Lord in the midst of this paralyzing fear because he has this confidence about him that he has a God on his side. When you are confident in the Lord that you have this God who is with you, you are assured of that, you worship, you praise, you thank him, you honor him. The goodness of God certainly can be a change in circumstances, and we should pray to that end, whatever circumstances you might find yourself in, in whatever season that you might find yourself in, we have permission from the Scriptures to pray for a change of circumstances. Lord, change this. Change this in my life. Change this situation. Change this circumstance, O Lord. But the goodness of God is not always so narrowly defined. The goodness of God is not always a change in circumstances. People are always eager to improve their circumstances, but almost never as eager to improve themselves. Is a change of circumstances situation important to the Lord? Absolutely. But more important than a change of situation is the improvement of your character. Because most important to Christ Jesus is that you might be greater and greater conformed into his image. His goal is to make you more like himself. So the command is to wait. Lamentations 3.25 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The Lord is good to those who wait. Are you willing to wait. Let's pray. Father, there are some here who who are waiting. Perhaps many are here today who are waiting waiting for an answer to prayer, perhaps waiting 
for a change of circumstance or situation. Perhaps waiting for deliverance from something. Perhaps waiting for provision. Perhaps waiting for peace and tranquility to permeate their lives. Lord, would you encourage your precious saints and help them to wait. To wait for you. Help your people to rest in this promise of lamentations that you are good to those who wait for you. And as they wait, help them to seek your shining face, to seek you through your word, to seek you through prayer, to fix their minds on Christ Jesus, to fix their minds on his perfections, his glory, his love, his mercy, his wonderful gospel. Give endurance to your people. And Lord, we pray that you would bring about your goodness soon. Let your people see your goodness, whether it is a change in circumstance or whether it is a strengthening. Let your people see your goodness. Even today, O oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.